The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. Welcome to Stock Tech. My name's Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is analyst James Carlyle. Hey, James. Good morning. And all the way from Vancouver, I think we're disturbing his dinner, but is uh, <laughs> Graham Whitcomb. Hey, Graham, what's the time over there? Hi, Gaurav. It's only 5 p.m. now, so... Oh, that's not, okay. Not Although, <laughs> do you know, since I've had the second child, who's three now, I've been having dinners, I reckon, at about 5, 5.30, along with the kids. And then I have a secondary dinner uh, after they've all been put to sleep. And that would explain... Um, a lot actually about the, about the dad bod that's been growing around me. <laughs> Helps you sustain your energy. That's good though, to eat, eat with the, eat with the kids. I think that's, that's something we've yeah, always tried to agree. do. I think it's a good thing to do. Well, they kind of conversations as well. Well, the conversations are just painful, really. Um, well, yeah, but look, a lot of it. why, why, <laughs> why? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. You see, that's helpful. Yeah, no, it's probably the right question to ask, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> if only we had the answers. Yeah. <laughs> Now, um, speaking of answers, JC, um, Woolies, let's talk about that and the Endeavor split. I noticed you you wrote it up this week. Woolies yep. is a business we've recommended for a while, actually. We, we, we've sort of um, had it on. A little on while a... ago. We haven't had it on as a buy for a little while, yeah, but we did not, not for a, while. a bit. And mm. then it moved to hold when everything went wrong. Everything went wrong for it. And yet the share price is actually... We were buying at high twenties, I think. We yes, had a, that's right. the, we actually had a buy up to thirty six dollars at one point, and yeah. that looked woeful when it because it got down to twenty bucks, didn't it? When it was going through a few problems. Well, I remember ago. that was very contentious at the time. Yeah. Even... Well, look, it, I mean, look, buying at thirty six wouldn't have been a great plan. Um, but would have worked uh, out okay. <laughs> well, look, I mean, we're forty forty one or two dollars now, but the market's probably done more than that. But anyway, yeah. look, I mean, it hasn't been a disaster, and that's, I guess, that's what you get from Woolies, isn't it? You, you get, don't expect too many disasters. Well, this is what surprises me because usually, so Woolies has announced this um, <clears throat> spin off of part of the business, and ordinarily, you get these announcements when businesses are doing poorly or they're under pressure or things are going disastrously, and, and none of those things are really true for Woolworths, and yet we've got this very large split of part of the business. Just explain to us why Woolies is looking to split and exactly what assets are included in the new group. So the new, so I'll do those in the, in the reverse order. The, the, so it's um, splitting off its, its liquor assets, um, which is the, so Dan Murphy's uh, BWS um, are the main things on the, the retail drinks side, on the drink stores, bottle shops. Um, and then there's a bunch of pubs as well, which is um, ALH group, which owns lots of uh, mainly pretty good quality pubs around the country. Um, and the reason for splitting it off, well, it goes through a whole bunch of reasons, all the sort of normal things, which is to give it its own sort of strategic focus and its mm. own stronger brand clarity, um, you know, pursue its own strategy and growth agenda, which means... But all can... those things were true five years ago, they were true 10 years ago. They yeah, that's what I thought when I read all, all of those yeah. reasons. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. All of that was true. Um, I mean, look, I suppose these businesses have grown grown up gradually within Woolworths. So, you know, there comes a point where they get big enough to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm only trying to defend the indefensible, really. But um, <laughs> I mean, the, the main reason I think that they're spinning yes. it off is because... 
shareholders would prefer to be able to invest in it um, without the ethical issues of, of liquor and pokies. Yeah, that's remarkable, um, isn't it? The power of the ethical investor has grown so much that it's forced Woolies to act. I find that yeah, in, but I mean, look, incredible. I th- yeah, maybe, but there's no obvious reason, I don't think, why you should. I mean, look, some of these assets are co-located. Um, so there's, there, I mean, look, there is some reason, and they've got this extensive partnership agreement um, between the two companies, uh, which, in fact, they didn't give a lot of detail about. But um, they're going to be working together on a bunch of things, um, you know, supply chains, the digital um, media, and all that sort of thing, um, loyalty programs. So, you know, it shows just how integrated they are. And, you know, they are shops and a lot of them are, co- you know, co-located. And so, you know, you can see that, that, that there are some reasons for having them um, as part of the same group. But at the same time, it does provide some choice for shareholders. Um, you know, it, there's no point in, you know, you, otherwise we'd all have index trackers, wouldn't we? If, every, if everything was rolled into one giant company, um, you know, so... Ultimately, there does it, it does make sense to have companies fo- focused on particular areas, um, and also to give shareholders the opportunity of choosing different stocks, different stocks of different um, defensive and return attributes, and also um, ethical attributes. Yeah. So, um, the idea, uh, presumably, is that by opening up to a wider uh, set of shareholders. Anyone who wants to own the liquor can still do so. They can just hold on to the the Endeavor shares that they get out of the demerger and they can buy more if they like. But if people only want to own Woolworths, then that opens up, uh, opens the stock up to those investors and theoretically makes it slightly more attractive to own and, and, and reduces, therefore, um, its cost of capital. That's the way they describe it. In, in Great. The, Graham, do you think? Do you think? Um, I mean, my view is that this is being driven by a stunning increase in the power of um, uh, ESG funds. Um, does that make you worry about any of the businesses that not worry so much? But does that does that cause you to think about businesses that you own and um, and whether the ESG drive affects them? Is this is this specific to Woolies, or should every company here with ethical concerns? Are they going to be looking at the same thing as well? It's funny. I think I have a different take on uh, ethical investments than the majority, which is if if they're selling something legal, then I would rather an unethical company be owned by ethical shareholders and ethical managements. And I feel like that's a better way of doing it than leaving it to the unethical people to run and to own and to get rich from. So well, that, um, that's that's a very good point because because when Woolworths talks about lower cost of capital, although actually I don't think they use those specific words, but that but that's really the drive of it. That's that's the sort of financial alchemy here. When they talk about lower cost of capital, what they really mean is lower shareholder returns, people accepting lower oh, returns. Okay, yeah, and good point. and yeah. and you know, a higher cost of capital actually means the stock is priced to give higher returns. So, mm. you know, you end up possibly with a situation whereby um, the, and, and this, you know, this has been argued in the past where the the unethical assets actually make more money for people. So the bad guys get, get <laughs> end up making get richer, more money. Faster, get richer, yeah. richer, faster. That doesn't seem like a great yeah, strategy if you're an ethical yeah, person. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I, I do tend to agree, actually, if you, if you have 
companies owned by ethical people. Well, no, that's not to say that you're not an ethical person if you if you own gambling stocks. You know, these are all choices, but and they're all legal. But um, you know, you can apply pressure, I suppose, to do it the right way. Whereas I suppose if you separate it off entirely from ethical yeah, funds, then, then there's no sort of pressure to to you know. That's the point. Is that by refusing to own it, you're just giving up your vo your voice of uh, influencing the board or the the direction of the company. Mm. Um, I feel like if you if you don't want to own an ethical company or you think that it's doing something wrong, the way to attack it is by voting with your wallet and not buying its products or not. Um... Well, but that's the thing, isn't it? No one really gets much um, traction with that these days, do they? So... Well, campaign. I think you'll get more out of campaigning using your riches from the <laughs> the profitable unethical company to. Uh, petition politicians. Or yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I can't. Um... My quick problem with ethical, the ethical strategy, is it, it, this: is the question of whose ethics. Like, I, I don't. I, I'm. I, I personally don't have any problem with gambling. You know, I'm, I'm an old-fashioned libertarian. I, I want to give as much um, autonomy to individuals as possible. And I'm. I would much rather own ALH than own something like Facebook, which is the single worst development I've seen in my lifetime. I think it's the worst product for society that we've made. And if all these ethical funds are happy to own that, despite all its nefarious consequences, and they don't want to own a liquor company or a coal business I agree. Or, a, or a gambling the, business. I mean, come on. Facebook Facebook seems the worst kind of unethical in that it's it's hiding its unethicalness. Yeah, uh, whereas sure. at it's least evilness. the gambling companies let's, let's get, are openly there, saying, like, yeah, the gambling companies or drug stocks or whatever are at least openly saying, "Look, we have a, con a controversial product, and we're going to sell it anyway." Yeah, <laughs> but the, but that's that, all that is a slightly separate point, isn't it? Because what you're saying there is that it's difficult for ethical funds to, um, you know, tread a line that'll satisfy everybody. Um, but in going back to Woolies and Endeavour. Hmm. Uh, by splitting off Endeavour, what they enable is choice. So yes. no, you're, you're the, right the, the more yeah. sort of focused different companies are, hmm. then the more people get to make that choice for themselves. It's just unfortunate that um, because there's uh, less appeal, there's a smaller pool of people who can buy the unethical companies, the unethical companies, the supposed unethical companies, I should say, because none of this is illegal. Um you know, they, they will ultimately quite likely make higher returns. Yeah, that's the funny thing with this, with the, the choice argument is that a company's management is kind of legally bound to do what's in the best interest of the shareholders financially. That I'm not sure if it's that they should be giving the shareholders uh, choice if it's going to lead to lower returns for them. Well, but, whole... it, but the, the idea is that it leads to higher returns for Woolworths, isn't it? Uh, oh no! For current Woolworths shareholders, I mean, mm. so this is the point, isn't it? So Woolworths, the idea is that its rating goes up as a result of the demerger. So existing shareholders make a bit of money, um, but then the company will be set with a lower cost of capital and lower returns. So, so, um, so for existing shareholders, it's it's theoretically a good deal. And look, I should I should clarify some of this because I mean the last 10, 20 years, I think most of the evidence is that that I mean a lot of the strong performance has been in sectors which are deemed ethical, like pharmaceuticals and software. Um, IT. Uh, and software yeah. and yeah, that's right. So mm. some of these um suppose, you know, gambling liquor type assets haven't actually done although tell that to aristocrat shareholders. Oh yes, well. quite. Yeah. <laughs>
Right. Interesting uh, point. But let, let's go back on to Endeavor, JC. I was quite shocked. Uh, we were going through the numbers that you outlined in your review. Oh. So I was not aware of this, but Dan Murphy's has a forty percent market share. I think. I no, think no, not this. Dan Murphy's. That's. Oh, sorry, um, the the Woolies Group, right? Yeah, Woolies Group. I actually Endeavor, and I yeah. actually saw a broken note come around today that said it was forty eight percent. They're wow. using different. So they're Amazing. so in the uh, demerger booklet it was forty percent, but the right. thing um, uh, today I saw forty eight. So look, it's around there. And the next and, closest was. Uh, a third of the market share is that what? Yeah, what, Coles, yeah. which um, in the article, uh, well, I can't remember what I what I've said there, but but I think there there are fourteen percent. I've said there, but the but the research I saw today said they were eighteen percent. So okay. I actually think that they're just defining the market probably slightly differently. Right, so, right. Yeah. Um, but um, and w- within Endeavor, um, within Endeavor drinks. Dan Murphy's is about sixty percent. So Dan mm. Murphy's itself is, you know, thirty odd percent of the mm. um, of the liquor market. And, and, and apparently, the difference is not that mm. it has more customers, but that uh, it has a bigger more uh, drunk uh, customers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> possibly, but they spend more. So per transaction, they yeah, right. spend something like seventy bucks, whereas I think typical. For the smaller retailers like BWS, um, Liquorland, and uh, is is more like sort of forty, mm. uh, forty or fifty. So um, that really makes the difference. Um, so look, they're very dominant. Um, they got very strong branding, um, and uh, you know, they're, they're, I think they'll be seen as relatively um, uh, strong assets. Yeah, uh, that was my impression as well. I wasn't actually aware of the the numbers, but going through um, your article, I was quite impressed by the strength of the business and especially that on-premise channel, running liquor through on-premises. I was I wasn't aware that the margins were so much higher than running liquor through retail stores. Well, they are when we're not when we haven't got a pandemic. Yeah, when, mm, yeah. <laughs> when the pubs are open. Yeah. Um, well, that's but that's fair enough, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is you fair have enough. To, Makes you, sense. You have to think employ about more it. capital and all that yeah. sort of thing. You have to f- sure. refurbish the pubs um, in a in a quite different way. But this strikes um, me as and quite. And I guess a... they get the pokies revenue in that as well. Oh, this... the, no, well, the pokies are in the hotels. In fact, no, the hotels. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But this strikes me as quite a, a high quality business, James. Are we? Is is it possible that the market has mispriced um, the drinks and alcohol business inside Woolies. Um, is your view that this could actually generate a lot of value? Oh, no, I don't think so. I think that, um, I mean, look, the whole of Woolies is, is pretty highly priced. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, so so <laughs> yeah. currently we reckon it's on a multiple of about 26. Yeah. Um, What's the yield on Woolies? I think I think the it's being priced on oh, yield more than up. earnings. Oh, Must yeah, be two look, or three percent. I, 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 I yeah. couldn't tell you actually. Something, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, look, it's quite highly priced. The question is whether you think out of that Woolies is going to get a bit of a premium. I would be very surprised if Endeavor was valued more highly than Woolies, mm, given a higher rating than Woolies. Mm. Um, I, I should stress that this is <laughs> – so the numbers are – look, um, when I was doing the numbers for this article, this should be a pretty straightforward a, a bit of research to do and an article to write. But I'll tell you what, we've had – because there, there are – Pandemic adjustments, of course. Um, then if you go back to try... So because of the pandemic, you need to go back and look at 2019 because that's where the last year that the thing made sensible earnings. Um, and then you've got AASB 16, which is very significant because they've got a lot of um, leases, um, both both uh, groups. Um, and then in 2018 and 2019, they have a bunch of 
53 week years and and 27 week halves and uh so cobbling all the numbers together has been an absolute nightmare and if anyone finds any issues with any, any of the numbers please please don't raise it because i absolutely <laughs> don't have another couple of days i just don't have the, the energy to go and look into it all again right, i don't I think, think those, I've, i think i've roughly got it right but the um those small yeah. adjustments wouldn't change the no, they wouldn't. no 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 they, would, they wouldn't but, yeah. but while they, well in one of the years at one point i realized because i'd been using two different halves which turned out to be 27 week halves i was actually looking at a 54 week year trying mm. to make a calendar year out of it you see and um a 54-week calendar year instead of 50. It begins to make a bit of a difference. That's 4%. But anyway, look, you've got to make all those adjustments. So when you're looking at the PE now, um, you've got to sort of – so I'm trying to normalize everything and, and um, exclude COVID. Wouldn't it be great if we could exclude COVID from, yeah, from everything? But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, because, look, this is – you know, the, this will wash through in a year or two. And um, so the last year – so whatever the – P is over last year's earnings or even this year's earnings because the pubs make higher margins mm. pubs being closed and people then drinking at home instead um if they buy uh, you know the, the money they spend at her, uh, in the bottle shop is only six percent margin and the money they spend in the pub is 20 percent margin so the profits um when you know are, are understated at the moment due to covid um and should recover um, so but, what do you reckon on normalized earnings? Uh, I think PEs are probably the right way to look at this stock. What, what's, what, what's well, you can do it PEs or you can do it sort of, I also looked at enterprise value and in, in, in EBIT, but it comes out, it, it essentially comes to the same thing really. Mm. Um, so, so look, um, Woolies is on about 26 and I reckon normalized earnings, you'd probably say Woolies will go up to um, uh, maybe 27 um and uh endeavor probably go the other way 24 or something something around there that's that's my guess so i've suggested that endeavor probably start trading around a price of uh, about six or seven dollars um and uh you know we'll see (laughs) that could could look pretty stupid we'll see um and uh, look, we'll confirm the price guides. Look, there'll be more research. There'll be more things to look at. There'll be mm. more. Um, we'll get to know more about it over the next few months. So we'll fine tune the price guide. Um, we're in no particular rush to buy it, but we wouldn't, you know, um, Woolworth shareholders, you'll get distributed these shares and you probably probably hang on with, hang on to them, um, at least until you see a final result, I would say. I mean, I wouldn't be rushing to sell them. They're pretty... Um, you know, there's uh, relatively attractive one. One comment um, that's been made on the article, actually, which is something which should I probably should have mentioned. Um, I probably should have thought more about it. But um, uh, you know, a lot of it, it was odd coming to this country from the UK because in the UK, um, if you want to buy a bottle of wine, you go to Tesco's or Sainsbury's um, or Waitrose, uh, particularly Waitrose, I think. And um, you know, so. You, you don't. You the bottle shops have a much smaller share of the market, uh, and the supermarkets actually sell. So if, if you know, you you could imagine it hasn't happened in many many years, and the whole structure of the industry is set so that it it shouldn't. But with different owners, you know, if if suddenly um, Woolworths and Coles were allowed to sell alcohol, um, that's not going to be very favourable for Dan Murphy's. There might be an even more uh, horrific outcome, which is what happens here in uh, the People's Republic of British Columbia, where <laughs> the, the government uh, has this clever rule where it, it doesn't have it. 
it sells all the liquor itself. You buy it from the government liquor stores. Uh, there what? are private liquor stores. I know it's crazy. There are That's private true. liquor stores here, but they have to charge this extra tax. So nobody goes to them because you always get it cheaper at the government stores. Um, yeah, it's, re- it's really weird how the, wow. the BC government owns the liquor business in this province. Wow, that sounds, yeah. that's a weird and suspicious. The, the, the rum core, isn't it? What's that? <laughs> yeah, awesome. it, it, it is very odd. And they own, this is the other thing, they own all the cannabis stores here too. <laughs> so the government is the one selling the cannabis. Do they own all the casinos? <laughs> oh, I don't think the casinos, but yeah. They're making their choice, ethical choices, aren't they? Yeah. yeah that's great. Very I love it. The government will get you drunk and get you high. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Well done, Canada. <laughs> hey, Graham. Um, Let's move on to a company I've been really wanting to pick your brain on for a while, and and that's CSL. Um, you've covered CSL for as long as you've been with the business. Uh, I've owned the stock for 10 years, and if someone asked me in two sentences, can you explain how CSL makes money, even after being a shareholder for a decade, I'm not sure I could. <laughs> I think that's actually true for <laughs> lots of people. There's, there's, I can't think of a stock where there's a wider consensus that it's a high-quality business and a greater certainty that very few people can explain what it does. So now that we've got uh, got you on the line, let's run through this business in a little bit of detail. Just tell us very simply how CSL makes money, and then we'll go through what makes it a good quality business. CSL is in the extraction business, <laughs> kind, of like, kind of like a miner, only it's tapping people's veins for its uh, booty. If you start at the very beginning of the process, uh, in the US for a few different reasons that it, it doesn't do elsewhere, um, mainly regulatory ones, it has all of these collection centers where it pays uh, plasma donors. So people come in, they donate plasma, they get 30 to 50 bucks, and uh, then CSL pulls it all together. And then within that plasma, there's a whole um, range of different proteins, different antibodies, things that are valuable once they've been separated out uh, and can be turned into a, a medicine that in many cases will save someone's life, uh, particularly immunocompromised people, people with haemophilia. Uh, CSL also has an um, albumin business, which it sells all over the place for people that need albumin transfusions. Well, what is, uh, what is albumin? Albumin is the, it's actually the cheapest element in the blood plasma, but, it, by, but it's the largest by volume. So it's the... Um, it's the white proteiny stuff that you would find okay. in an egg. Okay. Only right. you get it in your blood. Okay. So uh, so let, let's just um, summarize where we are so far. So CSL actually is a this is a really good analogy actually. So it's a mining business tapping people's veins. It takes blood, um, collects it, and then separate it separates the blood and uses the useful stuff and sells that on. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the our blood is made of thousands of different individual proteins. Some of them are useful, some of them aren't particularly. Uh, CSL takes people's blood, pulls it together, then separates out those individual proteins into Mm. uh, specific medicines that can then be used for the people that are lacking them or that need them. Okay. And and does it sell the raw ingredients or does it then go on to process its own medicines? Most of it, it processes processes for itself, but it does, uh, it's, it's the largest plasma collector in the world. It has just over a third market share. Uh, so it does sell excess on the open market as well, depending on the need for its own business. But it, it prioritizes its business as far as I know, and it's just the excess that gets sold off. 
And what makes it so good? Is it the fact that it can collect and process more blood, or is it the stuff that it does with the blood afterwards that makes it that you like that you like about it? Well, there's two elements to it. So, in terms of the collection, it's got the broadest base of collection centers, which gives it a lot more stability than the other big uh, plasma collectors. So, if you look at some of the uh, some of its competitors like Griffles, they occasionally go through these. Uh, supply constraints where they can't actually produce enough medicine because they don't have enough plasma supply. Uh, whereas CSL, because it's always selling off the excess, it actually has a very stable base of uh, of those raw ingredients that it can then use to make its medicines. Uh, so that that's definitely an advantage compared to the others. And in terms of the second half, where it's the actual drugs that it's selling, it has a competitive advantage there because each of those drugs is often uh, well, is always highly regulated. It has to go through a series of clinical trials. It needs to get various approvals in different regions. That gives it pricing power versus uh, a lot of the competition because in many cases, it's the only drug that's approved for that particular use. Uh, CSL in particular has a, um, a large proportion of its, uh, of its revenue comes from specialty medicines, which are Mostly, they have something called orphan drug status, which is where the government has specifically said at the beginning before a drug is approved, this is a uh, this is a particular condition that's very rare. It might only affect 500 people or something like that. And then it goes out to the large manufacturers and say, if you, this is kind of figurative, if you are able to make a medicine to attend to this, we'll give you all of these special uh special conditions that allow you to make more money out of it, essentially. You'll be able to charge more for it. You'll be able to have exclusivity for, say, a decade or something like that. You'll get all these extra marketing approvals. So when a company is able to get this orphan drug status, it usually has very, very high margins on what it's selling because in most cases, it's the only company that's allowed to sell it for at least a decade. And CSL has a large, it has around 20% of its medicines are under that classification. So is it a big advantage to put those two bits of CS, those two sides of CSL, um, the fact that they're together, is that, is that part of the secret source of CSL or, or is it really the, the collection side that can't be replicated easily? Well, the collection side is probably the part that can be replicated more easily because it's, you can accept lower a company could accept lower returns by just paying people more to get a larger volume of um, plasma. So you you couldn't collect more from any individual, but you could open more centers, you could incentivize them with a higher payment to try and suck people away from CSL. So I think, I don't think that's an especially strong advantage, though it does work for CSL because it has a very large business that depends on it. most of the advantage, I would think, is in their research and development arm. I once covered CSL way back. I was asked, <laughs> Greg asked me to write it up in, I think it would have been 2004, maybe. So uh, please, actually, anyone, don't go back and look at that article. I think my, my conclusion was that it was far too expensive on a P of about sort of 15 or something. Um, and it's gone up probably 20-fold since then. Um but my conclusion was based, I think this was before it merged or took over Aventus Bearing. Hmm. And the problem back then was that the immunoglobulin market 
was hugely cyclical and very difficult. Um, and it seems from what I've noticed, from what I can tell, that, that those cycles seem to have essentially stopped. Um, that, you know, 2004, just as I was writing, writing that up, was about the last one. And uh, is, that, is that because the market's now become more con concentrated? Is that a result of that, that merger? Uh, it's the result of two things. So yes, it's partly because of the that merger, but also the whole market. The whole market's been consolidating, so that now there's only kind of three or four, well, three major players, and then a couple of tiddlers. Uh, but probably the bigger impact is it's not so much demand for immunoglobulins and antibodies is cyclical. That's pretty stable. The cyclicality would come because each of the big plasma collectors didn't know what anyone else was collecting. And so you'd get these booms and busts in uh, collections uh, because they couldn't forecast the demand. Well, they couldn't forecast their own demand, I suppose, very well. Uh, however, that changed. I can't remember the exact year, but it might have been, I think it was around 2008 or something like that. Uh, in the US, they, the government, I can't remember the exact details, but they set up a basically a centralized agency where these three major collectors then pull their data so that they can actually get an accurate number of, of how much everyone's collecting and how much demand is needed and then balance their own, uh, their own collections based on that. So what it ended up doing was just meaning that the companies can, can match demand more accurately, which took out that swing factor, kind of like, uh, OPEC with the oil industry, they were suddenly able to see everyone else's data right. and so move right. in sync a bit better. That's I should say, I'm, I'm, now, I'm looking at that article now. Hope Springs Eternal to CSL. It was September 2000. It's only 10 bags since then, so I don't <laughs> it was right. It was expensive on a PE of 24. <laughs> Those were the days, eh? Another um, 10 bag to go. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. So, Graham, it sounds as though you like the research part of CSL the best. And if that's the case, then CSL sounds more like a traditional pharmaceutical business than it does anything more than that. Why does CSL get so much more reverence than your typical pharmaceutical business? Do you think it deserves it? Is it better than, say, an, an international pharma? Um, yeah, go ahead. When I, when I say the research side, I guess I mean not so much what it's currently researching necessarily, but the, the side of the business that owns the medicines, which is bearing, uh, that side there is where most of the profits are made. And then you can think of the collections business as being kind of a standalone entity almost that just happens to supply that side with the, the raw material mm. that it needs. I think having them together definitely makes sense. And that's a big strength compared to some of the other companies that make plasma-derived medicines, uh, but where they have to buy on the open market because you do get then fluctuating supply and it means that you're losing a lot of the margin in those times when supply is low to the seller because the price will go up of, of raw plasma. Uh, so I think that the, the business is definitely complementary, but in terms of where the money is actually being made, it's being made because of those protections for the individual medicines that are regulated or that CSL has bought uh, the rights to distribute and manufacture. All right. So, Graham, then why, if CSL has been so successful over this time, why haven't other plasma companies attached 
a pharmaceutical arm or pharmaceutical arms attached plasma collection? Why hasn't this model been replicated or can it be replicated? Well, they do. The, the, the other two major uh, players do have a manufacturing arm and also a uh, collections arm. Uh, it's not as good. In terms of why something like Pfizer would, wouldn't want it, is it in terms of the blood medicines, they are pretty okay. specialist. Uh, taking something out of plasma, refining it and converting it to a usable product, going through all of the regulatory uh, processes attached with that is kind of different to manufacturing a drug where you're, you're often using a man-made molecule and then manufacturing mm -hmm. that and then selling it. So it, they are pretty different businesses, even though the end result is healthier patients. Um, so yeah, I can see why they wouldn't overlap necessarily. And these days it would be hard for them to combine anyway, because they're all, the, the three major plasma companies are all huge. They'd be hard to purchase. Now CSL has the largest R&D budget in Australia, of any Australian corporate. And over the, well, over the last 10 years, really, they've, they've come up, been able to utilize that to come up with a whole suite of new drugs from the plasma, is there a limit to how much stuff we can use from plasma? Or do you think if CSL spends more money, they can actually get more, uh, more medicines from the raw material? There might be a limit to the number of specific proteins and molecules that they can get out of plasma, because that's going to have a cap on whatever happens to be in it. But a lot of their research budget isn't actually just discovering new chemicals or new, uh, or, or taking something new out of the plasma. It's finding new uses for the existing ones. So they're often expansionary clinical trials, which have which are taking, say, a protein that already has found a use, and then they're looking at what other uh, diseases it's able to treat, often oh. very close and adjacent ones, oh. and then going through a set of trials to prove that use for it. It's not just it's not just like each chemical has a single thing it can do. It's a lot of the research is going to use the same chemicals in different settings. My my guess is we haven't, we've barely scratched the surface. Am I right in saying, Graham? 20, Ten or sorry, twenty or thirty years ago, the only thing you did with blood was was transfuse it. You know, just yeah. use, use the raw material. I mean, use yeah. the actual stuff. Um, and so all of this has developed in the past sort of twenty mm. thirty years and. Uh, it's pretty remarkable stuff. You know, it's pretty pretty essential for for human health. Yeah, the big risk to CSL probably isn't uh, running out of interesting things that you can do with the blood. It's that they're getting better and better, including CSL and the other companies, at making a lot of those ingredients uh, mm. separately as mm. a man-made uh, version of it, uh, which is called a recombinant. But um, yeah, that could mean that their collection centers, which have been a big competitive advantage until now, kind of lose a bit of their uh, a little bit a bit of their edge because other companies like a Pfizer or something like that can come in and it'll be much more it'll be a more similar process than being able to scale up a kind of man-made manufacturing facility than to go and set up a thousand collection centers. So you can synthesize some of these blood proteins in the lab, is what you're saying. I mean, some of them, yeah, some you, of don't them need to, some, you don't need your, your collections, yeah. Yeah, so if you look at CSL's haemophilia business, uh, if you go back kind of 10 years, it was mostly all plasma-derived proteins. They would go into the blood, they would find a factor nine or 
whichever other proteins are necessary for to treat haemophilia and they would uh, extract them and then sell those. Whereas now kind of half of the business in haemophilia is all wow. man-made proteins. I guess you see that in vaccines as well, right? Where even five or 10 years ago, all vaccines came from chicken eggs. In fact, I read somewhere that the US has a stockpile, a secret stockpile of chicken eggs that it uses in case it has to quickly manufacture a large dose of vaccines. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. I, I heard that recently <laughs> as well. Um, Hasn't helped it much, has it? Yeah. The, the, it's completely useless now, the, right? The U.S. government's strategic yeah, the strategic chicken stockpile. Chicken stockpile. <laughs> where they have, there's, there's literally 50 million chickens in the U.S. that they have in secret facilities <laughs> being fed I just love the idea and, of uh, these uh, army rangers, these tough U.S. DOD guys feeding chickens, um, you know, in their, in their muscly shirts yeah. and, their, and their berets. I thought it was I thought it was so cool that you think about secret bunkers and that holding nuclear yeah. facilities, but Just there's chickens. actually secret chicken <laughs> facilities. <laughs> but but now, um, I mean, CSL itself is a great example of of a manufacturer who's moved from eggs to um, cell based manufacturing. I, mean, I, I would isn't that a really big deal for CSL to to have to face down that risk for the rest of its business? Well, it hasn't. Uh, it does have cell based manufacturing for the flu vaccine, but that's still only a small portion. Most of it is egg derived. Uh, and that's just because it's more expensive at the moment to actually make them without the eggs. But you would think that over time, they'll be able to make that process more efficient and probably will one day uh, eclipse the egg side, particularly because there's probably a lot of um, mm. pushback from animal rights groups having no one buys more eggs than CSL, which means a lot of unhappy chickens. Sure, surely the trend in medicine, though, <laughs> is more cell-based therapies rather than blood-derived therapies? Is, is, am I right in saying that? Uh, well, I don't know. It depends how you define it, I guess, because... Oh, this is the problem we're talking to a scientist. more and more things everything, in the blood that depends on something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. that's the real world. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that... I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure that that would be true, but you would have to think that there's an unlimited amount of human creativity, whereas there's only a, a limited amount of things that you'll mm. find in the blood. So it probably will be more man-made things over the long term. Okay. Well, as I said, I've held CSL for 10 years and the tricky thing about CSL has always been valuation. I remember when I bought it, I, I felt really uncomfortable. It was the most expensive stock I'd ever bought and holding it over that period has been a real disciplinary exercise because it's always looked expensive. I remember I almost sold it about 80, 90 bucks. I remember, I think I talked to Nathan at the time, who was the analyst. And I said, oh, I'm going to sell CSL. It's $89 as if it's going to double or triple again. And he said, oh, I don't know, mate. Maybe you just hang on to it. It's pretty good. <laughs> and luckily I did. <laughs> but how do you, uh, I mean, we don't want to go through the whole valuation process now, but is it is it a buy now? We, we've, we've been moving our price guides up on CSL. It's a tricky business to value. What, what, what are your thoughts on valuation? Yeah, it's funny. It's the one stock that I cover that I am just itching to upgrade at some point. I, I feel like it's the last, <laughs> the last frontier, <laughs> the last great company that I haven't actually yeah. had a buy on. But uh, but yeah, it does always look perpetually expensive and then perpetually beats your expectations. So I don't know what you do with those kind of companies. Uh so what is I, I what feel, is the PE at the moment, just roughly speaking? I think it's forty seven or forty six <laughs> or something around that. So it's a, don't they run a, they yeah, run a billion it's... dollars through the <clears throat> of R and D through the through the P and L though? So take that into account. 
Yeah, but that's but they've got to that, spend that. That is a that's, real expense. That, that, yeah, that, gets, that, that, that gives you the growth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah otherwise, their their medicines will go. No, but most companies would would, um, would put that on the balance sheet and amortize it though. Yeah, so you've got um, to put it on the, but then you have to amortize sure. it. So it's a question yeah. of whether it goes directly yeah. through or but, whether it gets. But smooth, the point is that that, that so. PE is probably looking a bit higher than it <clears> would if the accounting treatment was a bit different. Uh, well, yeah, it would, but I think that what they're spending on research and development is a, is a necessary expense. So you can't go cutting it out. No, 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 they're I'm not, not suggesting that. that. Yeah, but uh, but only that. No, but you'd still have to amortize it. Anything you put on the balance sheet yeah. does then get. But to, there's a difference in amortizing two hundred million yeah. and expensing, you know, one point two billion or something. The tricky part with the drugs is that such a huge portion of the expense is in the research when they don't actually know that it works. So most of CSL's research budget is going to phase three trials where they still haven't actually proven conclusively that the medicine does anything. Uh, but once it gets out of that, then they can put all of the, they can capitalize the development costs of actually uh, everything beyond the, the kind of clinical side. Uh, so yeah, most of it is actually research, and I think that's justified. And I guess I guess you know a large portion of that billion dollars um, spent on research actually doesn't end up producing anything anyway. So you know a small part. So you so that, and, and hence why it doesn't get yeah. capitalized. I suppose if if you did capitalize a lot of it, as well as amortizing a bit every year, you, you'd probably have to write some of it which, off. Which most companies well. do. You see yeah. that going on all the time. Yeah, well that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fewer than, I think one in 10 drugs at most would get approved after they've started phase one right. clinical trials. Right. So those those initial costs are just yeah. an expense. You can they only, you can only capitalize on it once you've got a def yeah. definite product. It's not really an asset yet. Now, the most important question, Graham, is I've held this business for 10 years. Should I buy more? Should I sell it? Or should I just hold it? Don't think just buy. <laughs> well, that's been the right answer for 10 um, years, though. <laughs> Take take part profits. Well, that was my advice in 2004. Yeah. Hence why I'm asking Graham. <laughs> it is a tough one. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it does look expensive, but at the same time, I wouldn't be selling it at today's price. Uh, I'd probably be sooner buying yeah. it than selling it. But it is it is the kind of stock I remember, it must have been at least six years ago now, uh, one of our members wrote in and they were saying they had a, they'd bought it at the float wow. and had it, it was now like a 50% of their holding or something like that. Uh, what the, what should they do? That's a harder question as well. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it is because <laughs> I think you, yeah, exactly. That's, that's the I only mean, answer. With these things that go up over the, uh, or, you know, outperform over years and mm. decades, you, you do have to take some money off the table from time yeah. to time. Otherwise they end up taking over your yeah. entire portfolio. And yeah. You don't want to be a hundred percent in CSL. Uh, but at the same time, if you own some, then, uh, I wouldn't want to be 100 percent out of CSL, I guess. So, talking of which, uh, price guy, I've, I've recommended maximum portfolio weighting seven percent. So, yeah, there you go. That tells people mm -hmm. something. Right. Anything else to add on CSL JC, or should we um, should we move on? That was really interesting, Graham. Thank you. Finally got to the bottom of that. Been wanting to yeah, sit you down in the room about CSL for a long time. Shame we didn't have <laughs> you covering chickens. it back in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm still waiting to upgrade it, so maybe I wouldn't have done any better. Yeah. Well, it's not that these ones aren't easy. It was on a P of 24. So now let's go to something much, much easier, which is uh, AMA Group, which um, uh, which is one of mine. Now, where to even start on this thing? So we upgraded AMA, I think it would have been around around 
just after March, right? April, May, somewhere around there, when it had it had fallen a long way from where it was. I actually took it to the Dragon's Den. It was a dollar a share, and thankfully, uh, you fellas talked me out of it, which was I don't think you I may have not have been there. It was. I remember JG banging down <laughs> saying, "Absolutely not, no way, not at a dollar." And you know, there was a big argument, and <laughs> we went back and forth quite a bit. And uh, he was gracious enough not to say, "I told you so," uh, when it when it all crashed. <laughs> But um, the concern really was um, was was uh, was margin uh, holding on to margin and balance sheet. And balance sheet has been the, the big problem really for them because they've probably paid too much for a major acquisition and taken a lot of debt to fund it. Um, and so we upgraded AMA knowing that they had probably a bit too much debt, but thinking they could handle it. They had some excess assets they could sell and. Um, they had contracted revenue, which should throw out a bit of cash flow to pay that debt off over time. So um, it, it's been traveling okay, I suppose, um, until the pandemic um, really, really got um, just continued going. Um, and the recovery has just been very slow. And it's been slow for several reasons. None of them have to do with the number of accidents being being counted. Um, we all know that um, people are back on the roads, traffic numbers have increased, um, there's been plenty of wet weather, and the two things that influence car accidents more than anything else is the volume of traffic and rainfall. Once you have those two in combination, you're almost guaranteed to have accidents, and we've had plenty of both. So we should be seeing really good um, uh, volumes going through AMA stores. Where, where's it located? Is it mostly New South Wales? or is it All, all across, across Australia, Australia. They, um, but New South Wales and Victoria. Victoria is its single biggest market, and, and New South Wales is its second largest one. Um, now, these guys make uh, make volume deals with the big insurance companies. There are two big insurers, um, NRMA and, and Suncorp, or, or as they're listed entities, Suncorp and IAG, which control 80% of the uh, claims market. And uh, AMA Group makes deals with those guys um, to guarantee uh, volume through their shops. Um, so it, it's it's a fair, it's probably a better protected business than it appears to be. Um, but we were just getting a few red flags just popping up here and then. The first red flag was when I woke up one morning and found out that the CSO, uh, the, the C, CEO had been sacked for, for misconduct and and <laughs> whenever that happens what was the um, misconduct well it's gone back and forth so apparently um overpaid uh, bonuses um un, unfounded expenses um taking money from the company all all these things but then he countersued the company and said that some of the directors were actually doing exactly the same things and then a whole bunch of other mm. allegations came out about lots of line managers and senior executives doing exactly the same thing. And he's following, which I remember we had the big discussion about this internally and wrote, wrote an article about it. When he left, we thought, look, it's one person leaving. These are pretty small sums of money in the scheme of things. We've got a safe pair of hands um, taking the, the new CEO role. It's and the price seemed still reasonable. We should have good volumes of of accidents running through AMA. I, my view was that we're probably okay to hold, uh, and which 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 we did. But then lots of other ba- um, bad news kept on coming out, and it was just a little. It was it was no giant red flag, but it was a whole series of little red flags that just kept on. Uh, coming out from trade publications, from people we were talking to, um, and from other other sources. 
um, a couple of those was that um, we heard that um, AMA had lost um, two uh, insurance companies as customers, which really should not happen because when AMA picks up an insurance company as a customer, it actually um, it integrates into the administration systems and backends of that of that insurance company, so it can actually process claims directly for the for the insurance business. And that level of integration should mean that it's quite hard to get rid of AMA as a um, as a vendor. But the fact that two two insurance companies had cut ties with AMA completely that was scary. And within the same breath, we also heard that the large its largest customer, which is uh, Suncorp, uh, sorry, which is um, NRMA IAG, they had started up their own. Uh, repair shops. Um, it was a it was a panel store network called uh, Repair to Go. I think it's called. They've got six stores in the network, and they're doing exactly what uh, Capital Smart was doing. They've set up um, machines that do low uh, low damage, high volume repairs. And so there was a. It looked as though that NRMA was getting ready to either negotiate really hard with AMA, or to even take volumes away from them. And these contracts come up from negotiation every two or three years, so there was a, every chance that that could happen. Um, but the thing that really nailed it for me was that um, uh, we kept on reading in these um, in, in trade journals that there was a mass exodus of senior executives uh, from AMA, and and that for me, they weren't getting their bonuses <laughs> anymore. <laughs> that for me is the is one of the biggest red flags of any business when you have senior people leaving. Remember when you're looking at a uh, after the CEO leaving. Well, the CEO, yeah, and after the CEO leaving. But the CEO, I mean, CEOs yeah. leave all the time, right? We see that all the time. Not, but they don't tend to oh, get plenty, sacked. Plenty of I mean, CEOs for, get sacked. Uh, yeah. Well, they get sacked, but not for, I mean, normally yeah. for performance rather well, than for Well, yeah, but listen, listening to the stories anyway, of both CEOs. We, we don't know that. We don't, we don't yet. The allegations Yeah, uh, there's still, lots of stuff going on there. Yeah. yeah it's all but when, when it? a whole bunch, and we're talking dozens of senior managers start leaving, that tells you something is awry. I remember reading, you guys read that book about, um, you know, that Theranos company? What's it called? Uh, uh, Bad Company, I think it's called. <laughs> Bad Blood, sorry. Oh, Bad, Bad Blood. Blood. Yeah, so Bad Blood is a is a book about Theranos, which was a, a big fraud. And one of the things um, that came out in that book was just the, the very high turnover of senior staff. Because once people join a business and they learn about what's going on the inside, Good people generally don't want to stay in really terrible businesses or businesses that aren't going anywhere. And so you get a big exodus. And it's always been something I've remembered. It's a big red flag. And when that started happening, along with all the other things we saw, I uh, decided just to just to take our losses and, and sell at that point. Now, since then, AMA has come out with a upgrade to say that actually uh, volumes are returning. Uh, there are all sorts of staff shortages because you know AMA actually relies on international uh, staff that brings over on four, five, seven visas, and, and none of those people are coming. There are big um, staff shortages, but we should be able to manage okay. And they ruled out a capital raising, which I thought was one big risk. Um, and the shares have, have, have bounced. So the, the question really to be answered is, was the sell decision a mistake? And I'm going to say, no, it was not, not just because it was my decision, but because, you know, investing is, is a tricky thing where I, I don't think we can measure success or failure by the outcome. And that's really counterintuitive because, because most things in life, you look at the outcome, then you go to the decision and you decide whether your decision was good or bad, depending on the outcome. Well, but the, but the point, the point is that the outcome has, has not yet 
happened. Mm. I mean, you, you do judge investment decisions by the outcome over 20, 30 years. Or, or, but I suppose your point is even, yeah, then, even then, you, yeah. all you can do is ma- make a bet on the yeah. odds. And Well, because yeah, there's so much right, variability okay. in in investing outcomes, right? Uh, you know, it, it's not just... It's not just your um, the things you know that, that are going to influence the outcome. It's a whole bunch of things you don't know and can't know. And so you've got to make a decision based on the information you have with you at the time. And, we, and you know, you go back and look at that, that list of red flags. If there's an error there, yeah. I think the error yeah. was not acting faster. Yeah. Um, yeah. The way I've, I've described this in the past, in fact, is because I'm now understanding your point a bit better. But if, if you make a bet on... Yeah, uh, Manchester Love United to be altering them in the in, in, in the <laughs> yeah. in the FA Cup. Uh, uh, if you get a chance to make that bet at evens and you back United, then that's still the right bet to make, even if altering them pulls off the biggest upset of all time and, yeah. and happens to doesn't make the the original uh, backing yeah. of Manchester United to beat them the wrong decision. And so, if you if you back um, um, yeah, and if, and if you back the other team, what it, the you know the the lousy team. That, that's, <laughs> that, that's, uh, they're fine. that's they're lovely. That's almost <laughs> that's a bad, you know, decision. They even though you may have won the the outcome. Do you see my point? So yeah. you can you can. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's right. a wider point here that it's not just related to MA, AMA. It's a wider investment uh, point, and that is that your, as an investor, your outcomes don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily a comment on your. On your decisions, um, you've really got to judge your decisions uh, based on the information you had at the time, and and was that a, the right thing to do at the time? Um, and, and I would argue what we're doing with um, a lot of our decision making is pattern recognition. You know, we, we we're looking for for patterns, and sometimes those patterns lead to the right outcome, and sometimes they don't. But you've got to stick to some sort of process, and you've got to stick to a repeatable process. And I think when you, when you look through to what we were seeing with AMA, um, we probably should have acted earlier, if anything, and probably should have acted earlier um, rather than be more patient with the business, probably should have been less. Um, but there was a whole, you know, when you have a whole series of, of little red flags piling up, I think that necessitates action. And doing nothing in that scenario, is that's probably the wrong decision. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on I that. I think that... The- yeah, the, the the thing is that you don't have to be invested in every company. There's a couple of thousand or more stocks out there, um, a few hundred, you know, uh, you know, which you could call fairly mainstream, and you've got to pick a few of them for your portfolio. My experience is that when there's cultural issues with a company, mm. you know, you, you tend to get bad surprises. Yeah. Um, you know, the good surprises tend to come from companies which have great culture, great management, great everything's clicking along. What's that Tolstoy quote from Anna Karenina? Happy families. You know, happy <laughs> yeah, families yeah. all being so uh, alike and unhappy families being unhappy in all their different ways. Um, something like that. And, um, you know, unhappy companies, are just they just, just tend to throw up a lot of bad surprises. Now, it's only been a few weeks with AMA and it's bounced and we, so there's been a, a pleasant surprise. But, you know, there's a long way to go with it. But, but however it turns out, I think if you're tending to back companies that have strong management and culture as opposed to the opposite, then I think you're going to be in better shape. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, actually. Yeah. Because I think the market doesn't. The market's obsessed with other obsessed things. With the markets, uh, you know, focus, fo- focused yeah, on numbers in the right. short term and, and, and thinking about the management and, and culture and longer term mm. opportunities and is not what it does. So I think, you know, the market 
tends to overlook these shortcomings um, and, and and underestimate the importance of good culture here. Graeme, um, we've gone on for a while. We should probably end soon. But anything to add on Tolstoy? <laughs> no, I've just been silently nodding. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Glad to glad to hear it. All right, let's close this off. And um, Graeme, thanks so much for, for bringing CSL to the table. We'll go through some of your other stocks, which have baffled me for a while, and, and pick your science brain at another stage. I'd like to hear lots <laughs> of that. Oh, Ramsey, there you go. All right. Uh, we might do that for, um, for soon as well. Okay. Yeah, you're right. That's one that, that I've never really understood either. Haven't, uh, haven't owned it, though. Sounds good. I'd rather talk about one that uh, I've owned, Graeme, if that's all right. No, no, I'm joking. I'm joking, of course. <laughs> no, yes, that was, for you, yeah. Of course, I'm joking. Okay. We'll, we'll definitely go through Ramsey. Okay. Um, Graeme, thanks for joining us at an odd hour. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Gorak. And JC, as always, uh, thanks for your time as well. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. For everyone else, thank you for listening.